You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Aren't you glad that 2020 is almost over? (laughs) Somebody said to me a few weeks ago, uh, man, I just can't wait for 2021 to begin. And I thought, what's gonna be different about 2021 than 2020? It's not looking good, but here was my idea. What if at the end of the year, this year, what if we bring up like a, a, a casket, a coffin, and, and we just bury 2020? Does anybody think that sounds like a fantastic idea? And so if you just think back over the last year, your list is probably far bigger than mine, but we got COVID-19, quarantine, tragic deaths of major cultural icons, We've got the most contentious election that I've ever seen in my 20 years of being alive. We've got my, give or take, give or take, all right? We've got murder hornets. Anybody remember those things? We've got fires all over the place, floods, snowstorms, PPE, PPP, e-learning, Fauci, a lot of E-sounding words, and the list goes on and on and on. And I was thinking to myself, this has been literally the craziest year that I've heard about in history, a worldwide pandemic that has changed the way the world works. And how many of you remember this? You remember that? That was yesterday. No, I'm just kidding. You remember this like February or March, word starts getting out, for those of you who can't see because you're listening to this down the road, word starts getting out that, hey, there's gonna come a quarantine, we're gonna go in lockdown, and none of us knew, is this gonna last a day or a year, but we all suspected it was gonna last maybe a couple weeks or something like that, and so you go to the store to buy those basic necessities, right? Toothpaste, toothbrush, milk, bacon, and toilet paper. And they're all gone. And it was just absolutely nuts. And you think to yourself, what makes someone buy more toilet paper than they will ever need? Now, I don't know about you. We've got a few extra rolls stockpiled at our house. And like many of you, you know, we're just planning on using our our Lowe's and CVS receipts if it gets down to it, because they're like the longest receipts in the world. You know, if worse comes to worse, we'll figure it out. I saw this meme on Facebook. I was going to put it up. Thought I'd just tell you about it. But it showed a house that was teepeed. Do you remember what that is when you were a kid? And it said, my house got toilet papered last night. It's now worth (laughs) $857,000. It has been the weirdest year ever. What makes someone buy more toilet paper than they could ever use? And the answer is one word. Ready? Good planning. No. Fear. Fear. What if there's not enough for me? That same thinking led two guys, Matt and Noah Colvin, remember this story? To go buy a whole lot of hand sanitizer. Here's a picture of that. When they heard the quarantine was coming and they were watching what was happening in other nations, they ran out, grabbed a U-Haul, and drove through all of the kind of the backwoods, out-of-the-way stores that they could find and accumulated $17,700 worth of hand sanitizer. Then their intention was to upsell it on Amazon. And originally, they were making serious bank. They were selling cheap 50-cent dollar hand sanitizers from anywhere from like five bucks, 30 bucks, even as much as $70 a piece. Now, is this amazing financial strategy or is this greed? Now, it might depend on what you do in the world. (laughs) 
Maybe some of the entrepreneurs in the room or at home watching online right now are like, that's a really good idea, actually. (laughs) So where is this fine line between greed and wisdom? I can tell you this. Something about this doesn't feel right to most of us because it's touching on a basic need, right? This is why these two guys got raked over the coals and I prayed for them. Like, this wasn't easy. Like, they, they just had an idea, acted on it. Maybe if they were to think back on it now, they might think otherwise. But I'll tell you what, I'm not much different than they are. And the reason I say that is, here's one example. I use this on a Facebook video that we use, so maybe you didn't see it, I'll just use it again. I'm one of those guys that my brain is in two places at once. It's in the things that are happening over the next week or two and things that are happening a year from now. And the problem is there's a gap in there somewhere, right, of a couple months. This happens, I tell the staff this all the time. If you want me to think about Christmas in 2021 before December 2021, you better put some meetings on the schedule somewhere in like June or July or whenever you want them because otherwise my brain's just not there yet. Like, I'm thinking about next year's Christmas now. I'm like, oh, we could do this and we could do that. But then January's gonna hit and it'll be out of sight, out of mind until December. Like, hey, why didn't we do this or that? And it's like, well, you're in charge, guys. So why didn't you think of it? Oh, that's a good idea. So the problem is the way that plays out in my life in a million different ways is when I'll be using like my last razor or my second to last razor, this actually happened to me. And I literally am going, oh, this is my, I'm halfway through this razor. So in a couple of days, I'm gonna have to use my last razor. I should probably start looking for a razor. I hate paying full price for razors. I don't know what female razors cost, but I think male razors are way too pricey. Like, it's a blade, okay? Like, it'll cut my, my, my hair off my face. Like, I don't need it to do much. And, and, and yeah, I get less hair all the time, it seems like. Anyway, so I go to the store one day and I'm like, ooh, I'm gonna start looking for when razors are on sale. And so I go down to Kroger, and there's nothing on sale here. And I go down the clearance aisle. You know, I love Kroger's clearance aisle. doesn't matter what I go to Kroger for, I check out the clearance aisle. And I walk down that aisle, right, on my way to get the milk. And, and I walk down there, and sure enough, there is a bunch of razors on clearance at Kroger. And I think there's like eight of them, if I remember correctly. It's a couple years ago. And I put all eight of them in my bin. And then I feel guilty for a second. I'm like, well, somebody else might need razors. So I put one back. And I go get my milk, and I go get the movie or whatever, and I'm like, ah, okay, fine. I put one more back. So I walked out with six bags, and each of these bags had like 15 razors in them. This was enough razors to last me until Jesus comes back, okay? I don't, I don't exactly know how long that's going to take, but it was a lot of razors. Now, I went actually home to my mom's house, and she bought my dad a bunch of razors for something. He didn't like them. So she's like, hey, do you want all these really nice razors? So then I got even more razors. Now, was I being greedy? Or was I being strategic? Now, your perspective on this might dictate your answer to that question, but here's what the Lord told me. He said, Matt, you're being greedy. And the reason you're being greedy, see, here's this thing. God and I have this little thing about razors. It's one of our many little things. I know it sounds silly, but it's one of our little things. Because it's one of those ways that like, when we're like, I'm looking for God to see, well, you, you, say, you say you'll take care of me. You say you'll provide. Like, and then like, razors show up. I'm not joking. Like, it's stupid. But every time I'm on razors, like, I find one on clearance. Every single time. It's God's little way to say, I still got you, bro. I still got you. I still got you. So it's my thing. You may have your own thing. But here's the thing. God, in that moment, God said, do you think I'm going to stop providing razors? Like, have I ever not provided a razor for you? And have you ever not gotten one on clearance or from somebody else? Has this ever happened? Why did you buy six of these? And what God said to me that day is, I intended to bless a lot of people with clearance razors. You aren't the only person I'm caring for in the world. And you know what went through my head? But God, what if the next person comes in and they just buy them all and they're being greedy? You know, like you? No, no, and it's different. 
It's totally different. Now you're like, this is the dumbest illustration of all time, pastor. I'm like, I get it, okay? It's my illustration. It's a way that God spoke to me because what God said to me is, Matt, I take care of the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. There's not a sparrow that falls in a field that I'm not aware of it. I know every single hair on your head and I'm making it easier for me all the time, but I'm gonna provide. Here's what I know. And this may be the biggest takeaway for you today. Where fear is present, faith has its greatest opportunities. Where fear is present, faith has its greatest opportunities. I want to show you a story in the Bible that illustrates this. And I'm going to leave you with some powerful takeaways for today. But there's going to be some nuggets in today's message y'all are going to need. You're all going to need. Here's the setup for this story. In the book of 1 Kings, we run into a guy named Elijah. He's a prophet. Some say the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Elijah um, gets motivated. If you read the chapters that lead up to 1 Kings 17, what you find is Israel doesn't look much different under kings as they did under judges. And the reality is there's these peaks and these falls that happen. With each king that leads the nation to God, there's subsequent kings that lead the nation away from God. But the kings that lead the nation away from God end up leading them further so that the next king who leads them back to God, his peak is not as high as the previous peak. I don't know if that makes any sense. So by the time we find ourselves in 1 Kings chapter 17, what we find is Elijah is frustrated. The king of Israel at the time, his name is Ahab, he's married. He's done what they call one of these union marriages where he married the daughter of a king up north of a foreign nation. Her name is Jezebel. And Jezebel worships Baal. The actual pronunciation is Baal. And she loves Baal. So when she becomes the queen over Israel, she brings worship of Baal or Baal with her into Israel. And what happens as a result is when the crops come in, because Baal is the god of the agriculture, the Israelites begin to thank Baal for providing for them. So they start to bow down and they say things like, praise Baal for providing all of these resources for us to consume today. And that's a problem. Because God has made crystal clear to his people, worship me and me alone. Trust me and me alone, and I will take care of you. And their hearts begin to turn. And Elijah is broken and angry, so he begins to pray. And he prays, do not let it rain, Lord. And he prays this over and over. Finally, God stops it from raining. And a famine begins to set in. And he communicates to King Ahab, it will not rain again until I say that it's going to rain again. And what happens next is God begins to feed Elijah down by a brook in a ravine. And it's amazing. He literally drinks water from the ravine, and then to eat, God brings him food brought to him by ravens. What was on your last takeout menu? I don't even know if this is sanitary or if he called the Coven Bros and got any hand sanitizer or like, did he get to pick the menu? Like, could we get some mignon today, Raven? Like, I don't know how this works. I know this, in Elijah's greatest fears and anxieties, he was convinced that God was with him. See, every time fear raises his ugly head, faith has an amazing opportunity to take over. During the quarantine, um, I got really good at kind of balancing life and schedule and trying to figure this thing out. The 
Sunday through like Wednesday or Thursday was an absolute blitz. I mean, it was like running a week-long marathon in a few days. We had to accomplish more. We did all our videotaping on Wednesday, but that meant constantly trying to turn over. We blew up our sermon schedule. We had to create everything from scratch. It was a ton of work. And so by the time I got to like Friday, I had these three-day weekends, but it was like, this is glorious. I needed all three days to start over again on Sunday and do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again. It was exhausting. It was exhausting. It was amazing at the same time. And God worked through it all. But one of the ways that I was like feeding my soul in this is my kids and I, we would go on these bike rides. We live over by the, the library, the Avon Town Park, and we would ride. Many of you saw us crossing the street on 36. We crossed over to the Washington Township Park, and we'd go down to the river there, and we would catch all kinds of crazy things, crawdads and fish and all kinds of fun stuff. We would have fun down there jumping into the river. But what would happen over time is uh, the water started to go lower and lower and lower, and we weren't in a famine. It was just natural Indiana weather patterns. Well, that happened to Elijah in 1 Kings 17. So he's eating these food from ravens, and he's drinking water from the brook. And over time, the water gets lower and lower and lower. Finally, gets down to just a few puddles. And now he has no more options. So do you ever wonder if Elijah thought to himself, will God provide next? Or is God's goodness now dried up? Here's what I know. This, I hope this isn't offensive, stupid pandemic, <laughs> the stupid virus. I hate Corona. I've nicknamed her Rona or the vid but I don't like her. I've got family members right now very sick with it. One of them ended up in the hospital for a few days. By God's grace, they're home recovering. One of them we're praying doesn't have to go to the hospital right now. And I hate it. I hate it. Yesterday, I got a phone call from a nurse in our church who um, just said, Matt, um, this lady's going into ICU. She's in ICU, and um, we don't think she's gonna come out. And the family is looking for somebody to pray with him. Can anybody at the church call? It's like, absolutely. So I'm on the phone yesterday with somebody I've never met, and I don't know if they're here with us or visiting today. And I'm praying, and here's the thing, and I'm praying, and I'm, I'm praying in faith, God, would you heal? Would you do a miracle? But I don't know that it's gonna happen. One of the most mind-boggling things to me is the book of James, when he's talking about Elijah, he says, Elijah is a man just like us. Now, I realize some of you are women, but if the whole point is, is he human being? There was nothing miraculous about Elijah. But Elijah got on his knees and he prayed for it to stop raining and God made it stop raining. And the writer of James is asking us to be bold and I'm praying with this lady on the phone and I feel like I'm having two conversations in my head. One is the bold prayer that says, God, I know you can do a miracle even though the doctors say there's no chance. And the other part of me says, but what if you don't? And that what if you don't often restricts my prayers. Hi, my name is Matt Nickerson. I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor here for about 11 years. And sometimes I'm afraid to pray in faith. Sometimes I'm afraid to pray boldly because I'm afraid I'll look stupid or God will look stupid if I do. And yet the Bible tells me to pray in faith. Here's the theological meaning of that before I go back into 1 Kings. See, God is going to answer the prayer. He's going to heal her wholly one day. She's a Christian, the lady who is sick. She knows Jesus. He may not heal her completely on this side of heaven, but he's going to heal her completely. So the question is, do I believe in the midst of the chaos and the pain of a pandemic that is wrecking societies, not just here, but all over the world, do I believe God is still good? Do I believe God is still at work? And do I believe that God can actually use me in that story? So God sends Elijah and he says, 
Your time here with the ravens is done. I want you to go. I've prepared a woman for you. She's going to take care of you. So he goes and he ends up running into this woman. I don't know that Elijah knows it's her. I think Elijah's probably testing the ground a little. The prophets don't always know more than us. <laughs> we often think the apostles always knew everything. I, I think a lot of times they're living out and figuring out their faith as the Holy Spirit leads them like he is us. We see it in some ways. And the prophet says to this woman, go, go get me a drink. It doesn't, it's not as masculine as it sounds or chauvinistic as it sounds. It was normal in that day. It was normal even in Jesus' day. And then he says, and she turns to go get a drink for him. And he says, and oh, by the way, would you make me some bread? And uh, then she says this in 1 Kings 17, 12. As surely as the Lord lives, your God lives, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour and a jar and a little olive oil and a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. That's a bad day right there. How was your week? What would it be like to know I have enough for one more? They aren't going to miraculously die after that next meal. What's going to happen next? One of my friends is a missionary in a very, very, very poor part of Peru. And um, they get kids who come in all the time and they've got all kinds of intestinal issues because they are so poor, they're eating dirt. Along with whatever weed or grass they can find. And when the kids are older, they kind of know what you can eat that's out in nature and what you can't. But when they're little and they're like three and four and five and nine and they're eating whatever they can find, It'll often make them very sick. I won't tell you some of the other things he's told me they've ate. And he wrestles every day because he can't solve the problem. And they get the kids healthy and they have to send them back home to the very place where the problems exist. And they're just doing the best they can. Is God still good? My friend will tell you, yes. They've seen tons of people come to faith in Jesus Christ through this pandemic. How in the midst of tragedy can faith explode? Well, the reality is the greater fear is, the greater faith has an opportunity if we'll let it. Jesus does promise one day he will take his finger and wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more pain and no more suffering. That day is coming. It's in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation. Go read the last couple chapters. Fantastic. Some of the most encouraging stuff you'll ever read, but we're not there yet. So here on this side of heaven, there are many tears. There is much pain. And the question in all of it is, will the pain drive us to God? See, a lot of us want to bring out that coffin. We want to bury in 2020 because we just want it to go away so we can go back to life as is. But I know this. God is at work in the now. He's not waiting for some future magic day when everything flips around again. Future generations may talk about 2020 or even 2021 should it linger on. And they will talk about the faith of the people of God who held on and didn't quit in the midst of it. They continued to make the first things, the most important things, and that's what this lady is faced with. Will she make the most important things the most important things? Because here's the reality. Fear inspires greatness. Either greatness for selfishness or for great faith. Let that sing in for you. Because I don't know what you're facing right now. You may be on the brink of losing your company or your job. 
You may be on the brink of losing your home or your family. You may be on the brink of losing a health issue or your life or a loved one's life. Those are real. This is real, guys. This coronavirus is real. What it's doing in the world, not just here, it's real. But so is God. Do not lose sight of the fact that so is God. So Elijah looks at her in verse 13, and he says, don't be afraid. Some have said it's the most repeated command in all of scripture. One person even accounted that there are 365 do not be afraids in the entire Bible. I don't know if that number is legit or not, but I know this, it's fascinating if it is. One for every day of the year. Do not be afraid. Then he says, go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. Here comes the moment of faith. Would anybody say this lady's being selfish for making her last bit of bread for her and her son? Would that have been evil or sinful or wrong? No, of course not. So why would I call this selfish? Well, it's not selfish, but I want you to think about the bigger picture. What's the difference between the meal I just ate at lunch today and the meal I'm gonna eat at lunch tomorrow if that's the last one or if this is the last one? About 24 hours. The reality is if all I have left is one more meal, it doesn't really matter if I eat it today or tomorrow. I've got one more meal, that's it. At the end of the day, what's about to come is a lot of pain and a lot of suffering unless God intercedes. So will he? Jesus says at one point, listen, look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. Are the birds of the air, are they not taken care of? What about the lilies of the field? Are they not clothed and beautiful? How much more precious are you than birds and flowers? He goes on another passage, he says, even a sparrow doesn't fall in a field without me knowing about it. How much more so you? I know the numbers of the hairs on your head, and some of y'all are like me, it's getting easier for him all the time. But if I know a sparrow falls in a field somewhere and you have never even seen it, how much more so will I care for you? Now, does this mean that care comes easy, no pain-free, no faith steps, no trust, no hardship? Elijah's being fed by a raven and water that's drying up. As my boys and I went to the water down by Washington Township Park and it started to dry up, it got this green kind of funky, mossy stuff on it. Oh, I'm sure that's exactly what is on your meal plan for the day as well. Was it hard? Oh, yeah. How about the journey from his last meal at the ravine to when he runs into this lady and she has to go and make it? Do you think there was ever anything in his flesh or in his body that said, I want more, I need more, I'm hungry? God didn't promise it would be easy. He didn't promise that there wouldn't be any pain involved. He didn't promise there wouldn't ever be anxiety about it. He just says, don't be afraid. And she's got a critical moment now, a decision to make. So what does she do? Verse 14, for this is what the Lord said. The God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Verse 15, she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. 
How exactly does that work? I want to know. I do. The Bible doesn't give me enough information. I want to know, like, when she reached in and got out the last little bit of flour and, like, put it in. I don't know how you, I have no idea how you make bread. And she put it in the thing, she makes bread. Then she grabs the oil and she dumps it out. Like, did it just, did she literally magically watch it go, whoop, and it filled back up? And did it fill back up to the exact same amount and only the exact same amount? It wasn't like, it went, whoop, up to the top, it's like spilling over. It's like, yeah, I get the feeling, however this worked, whether she dipped in and was like, I just, I can't, what is happening here? I get the feeling it just filled back up. Maybe it didn't do it in her sight. Maybe she put it back up empty and went, okay, and made the meal, and then came back the next day and went, I know, I know that was empty, and did it again, and then came back the next day. He doesn't say. All it says is day after day after day after day after day, she went back, and there was more food and more food and more food. You're thinking I got sick of eating bread, though? I mean, you remember the Israelites, right? In the Exodus story, God's feeding them with birds again, and it's food, bread coming down from heaven. And it's like, oh, how often do we have to eat this food? It's the same thing as manna day after day after day. Manna literally means, what is it? They don't even know what it is. It's manna for breakfast and manna for lunch and manna for dinner. Can I get some ketchup with my manna? No, it's manna. Eat it. But God provided What's really interesting is the way Jesus applies that then in the New Testament, and he says, um, I'm your daily bread. We're gonna do some sermons next year, and I'm working this out right now on this issue because this is something real for me. I added, you all get extra in the 11 o'clock, so welcome to 11 o'clock. God's really ruining me right now in a new way because he's making me understand the fact that um, I put way too much value in the flesh and not enough value in the spirit, and he's trying to grow my faith in this way. And the reason he's trying to grow my faith in this way is because Jesus, like there's many times Jesus is hungry and there's this time he meets this woman at the well and she's, she's caught in all these broken moral issues and Jesus is having a conversation with her and the disciples went to get food and they come back and they're like, Jesus, we got food. Like, what are you doing? Aren't you hungry? He's like, you don't understand. I've got food that I'm feeding on that is not in the flesh. They're like, they thought he had hidden food. They're like, did he stick some bread in his cloak? Like, what is happening here? Jesus is going, no, 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 no. I eat every day on the will of God and it's enough for me. I don't know about you, but I want to know. I want to know what it's like to eat on God every day, and it's enough for me. I want to know what it's like that when my body cries out in a desire, that God is first and it doesn't matter, that my flesh, my desires are still turned over to him because he's enough. And I want you to know that too. And so God provides miraculously. And here's what I wonder. What if Elijah hadn't taken the step of faith and gone to this woman? What if he hadn't reached out and said, hey, would you go make bread? What if she hadn't responded? Have you ever noticed that the way that God meets the needs of others is through a person? Occasionally, God may pull off a miracle that you can't explain. A raven comes down and does something crazy. But the majority of the time when God meets real needs, he does it through real people. And I know this too. This is a story that's in the Bible for us, but it's not the only one. How do I know? Well, a little bit later in his story, he goes toe-to-toe with the prophets of Baal and he destroys them. And it's like this crazy thing. You can read it for yourself later. But at the end of that, Jezebel, Ahab's wife, the queen, she puts out this note. She's gonna kill Elijah and he gets scared. Oh, so the guy who's telling everybody else, don't be afraid, is now afraid. Why? Because he's like you and me. 
And he's running for his life afraid. And God brings ravens down to feed him again. And he's crying out. He's like, God, this is terrible. Why are you letting me go through this? I'm just trying to be faithful. And I'm the only one. And God's like, really? The only one? Elijah, I've got thousands of other people just like you back in Israel. You don't know about them. So here's what I know. I don't know if it was ravens or miraculous jars filling up with flour and oil, but somehow God was providing for lots of other people. You know how I know? Because God is good all the time. And God will meet your needs as well. I love in the book, Jeff Manion, that we've been going through, he says this, here's a crucial question for the reader of the Elijah story. What if this journey of trust is not restricted to Old Testament prophets? What if God still whispers to his children, just do what I've asked you to do? Go where I've asked you to go and stay where I've asked you to stay and I will provide for your daily needs. Look after my interests and I will look after you. All right, so here with our remaining time today, let's answer this question quickly. I will be quick and as clear and as thorough and as biblical as I know how to be. How do I be generous? Better yet, how do I be generous in the middle of a worldwide pandemic where fear is ruining and reigning in my family and in my life? Here it is, number one, ready? Be happy to give. I know this sounds crazy, but God doesn't want a Grinch giver. God is not looking for somebody who goes, look at this. Paul says at 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a what? Say it with me on three, one, two, three, a cheerful giver. That doesn't mean fake smiling. <laughs> I hate doing this. This means when you actually give, you actually do it with a joyful heart. How can I give when I'm in the midst of fear? Here's the answer, because you trust the giver. You know that everything you have comes from him. You know that. And so you trust that everything he's doing is from him and he promises, I will take care of you. Once you anchor that fear in your heart, then you can respond in generosity to God. So be cheerful. Okay, God, I can't wait to see what you're gonna do next. Here you go. One of my mentors, a guy named Mark Moore, uh, he said years ago when he was spending some time with me, he said, Matt, he said, I keep trying to outgive God and I can't. I promised God that I would, I, would, I would give certain things away and I would sell certain things and give the proceeds for those things away. And, and he keeps bringing me more and more money. I don't know what to do with it. I have more money to give away than I have places to give them to. And I'm so excited about finding new opportunities to underwrite what God is doing. Now, do you think if he suddenly changed heart and said, you know, what I really need is a bigger car, a nicer house. Do you know how awesome that would be? Do you think for one minute God might take that spigot and go, hmm, not what I gave it for. I don't know. I don't know. I only know my friend is testifying on his behalf that he can't seem to outgive God and he's trying. There's this connection between what I have and realizing, I said in the last service, that I'm a banker and God is just putting the money in my bank for me to write checks and give away. And then I realized that's probably not what bankers do. They don't just give money away to other people. So I said, like a money launderer. And I realized that's probably worse too. Like I'm God's money launderer. Like he gives it to me and I just, you know, give it out to other people. I'm like, I can't find the right analogy. This is terrible. Somebody call the CIA or somebody on me, the police. No, seriously, listen. God wants to funnel his resources through you to others. That's what he wants to do with you. So how, how do I give then? Well, the second step is I've got to put God first. And the reason I have to put God first is because I don't, then God will get the leftovers. And when I get to the leftovers, there's not much left. Just be honest for a minute. 
You ever notice when you get to the end of your pay cycle, you've already got money, whatever, in your retirement account or your savings account, your bills are paid, and your kids' Christmas, and your friends' Christmas, and oh, by the way, you're gonna go to dinner, and there's that vacation, and you get to the end, and there's a little bit of spending money left, and that's about it. Maybe. If you're living paycheck to paycheck, you don't even have that. And there's the problem. Then God gets whatever pennies I could throw at him at the end. But when Jesus says, put first my kingdom and my righteousness, and then I will take care of all of your needs, it's a challenge. Many of the men, and maybe the women are the same way, but many of the men I know in this church, especially those who run businesses and own businesses, they will tell you that if I don't get up first in the morning and put God first, it won't happen. I'll get to lunch and I'll get busy. I'll get distracted. I'll try to do it before bed, but the kids and the needs, and I'm exhausted and I'm worn out and my wife wanted to talk to me. And so they've learned the hard way if God God isn't first in the morning. He doesn't happen. It's the same thing in your money. If God isn't first, then he'll be somewhere down the line and you won't give what you intended to give. So how do I know how much to give? Well, let me show you a passage and I'll explain it real quickly, but I don't want to hijack it. I'm going to do my best to be biblical and authentic. And every year when I use this passage, somebody sends me an email, feel free, really. I'm not telling you not to. Feel free. Let's talk through it. I'll explain where I'm coming from in this passage. Old Testament passage, Malachi chapter three, verse 10 says this. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Okay, first thing, the tithe, whoop, watch out for that. The tithe literally means 10%. Now the New Testament never says 10%. The closest the New Testament gets is Jesus affirms the Pharisees giving a tithe of all that they own. But the reason that I support the tithe, not as a ceiling, but as a ground, as a floor to stand on, it's a starting point, not an ending point, is because I believe there's something in this number, and I think I could show it to you all the way from Genesis all the way to the end, that there's something in this number that God knows unlocks our grip and our hold on things. There's something in this number that begins that process. Now, my wife and I have committed not to share the number that we give because the Bible says, don't let your left hand know what your right is doing. But I feel confident in saying this. My wife and I do not desire to stop at the tithe. We are well beyond the tithe. And we have a goal. We set a goal years ago to give 25% of our income away. We are not there yet, but that's our goal. And if I get there, I can already promise you we're going past it. That's our goal. I don't know what yours is. I, one pastor I know, Craig Rochelle, I don't know him personally, but Craig Rochelle said his goal is to give 50% away. Man, what is your goal? Because I know this. If you were to take a pay cut right now, you would reduce what you gave to God. But if you got a pay raise right now, would you increase what you gave to God? And for many of us, we don't. We start to think about the bigger car, the nicer house, the bigger clothes. And he goes on. He says that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now, I don't want to hijack this passage. In the Old Testament, the Levites, the priests, they were not able to own land and make money. So everything they ate, all of their needs were met by the people who would tithe on what they brought in and give it to the priests. And that was part of the sacrifice and system. I don't have time to unpack all that. But the church, while it's not a one-to-one -one correlation, it's very similar. Like, I don't have a second job. I could go get one. I've thought about it at times. But neither does our staff. The ministries, the missionaries we support in other places, the ministries in our community like uh, Family Promise and Sheltering Wings and Hope Healthcare, they are in many ways supported by the dollars you give to us and we repurpose and send out to them. The student ministries, the kids ministries, they all happen by the dollars that you give here. So while there's not a one-to-one -one correlation, it's very similar. And this is the only passage in the entire Bible where God says, just try me. It's the only passage we are told over and over and over again, don't test God. Don't test God. Then we get here, God says, oh, no, wait, wait, wait. There's one place you're allowed to test me. Go ahead, try. Just go ahead and see if I don't take care of you. 
So how much do I give? Well, you have to talk, if you're married with your spouse, with your family, and you've got to pray. I know this, every time my wife and I pray, God gives us a number and it's almost always exact. That tells me it's spiritual, not physical. When, when we've been through part of churches going through some sort of campaign and, and I've said, all right, you pray and I'll pray and we'll come together. It's amazing how often our number was exact or so close. It was easy to just go, yeah, let's just do that one. It's amazing to me. And then you go, okay, God, I really believe that you're in this. Is God in your giving? So here's a quick response before I make my really last point, the one that you really need to hear too, is if you're moved by this, we have people watching from all over the nation and all over the world right now. If you're at home and you're watching this too or here, you can actually literally just text, pull out your cell phone and text 317-565-4911, text the word give, G-I-V-E. And what happens, just a form will come back to you, say, here you go, you can just do it digitally. You can always give a person if you want in the boxes on the back on your way out. But for those of you at home, use this. All right, last point, and I'll wrap up here today. I want you to remember that it all comes from God for his purposes. Let me show it to you real quick in scripture, and then we'll close. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verse eight, Paul says this to the church in Corinth. He says this, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, is there a lot of alls in there? You will abound in every good work. In other words, no matter what's going on in your life, God desires for your life to abound in every good work. So God is going to bless you. How much? A teeny little bit. Just enough. No, abundantly. God is gonna give you enough to take part in the work that he is doing through you all over the world. God intends for you to be a widow who steps out in faith, who says, God, I'm gonna live. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna respond. I believe that Paul has this exact passage in 1 Kings 17 in mind when he writes this because look at what he says next. Look at verse 10. Now, he supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. This is really simple, even though it sounds like a lot of farming words we don't understand. So if I want to grow bread for myself, I gotta put seed in the ground. Then I gotta wait for the rain to come. Can I control the rain? Nope. Can I control the sun? Nope. Can I control the insects? A little bit, but not really. Nope. So at the end of the day, I could put the seed in the ground, but it takes faith for a lot of things to happen for this to grow into some crop. Then I could take that crop and I can make some bread at home, but then if I'm really smart, I'm gonna take some of that seed, I'm gonna put it back in the ground so that another crop could pop up. And that's the exact analogy. The God is in this whole process so that while I'm giving seed away for the next harvest, I'm also eating and God will make sure that I have enough to give away and I have enough to eat on and both needs are gonna be met, both my needs and the needs of others to the way that God has given. That really wasn't as hard as it sounded, was it? I think he's pointing back to 1 Kings 17 and he's saying, remember that story when she went in to make bread and she couldn't make bread and there wasn't enough there, but she stepped out of faith and God said, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time somebody steps out of faith, I take it, I take that and I do something with it. Then look, he says in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. That's a lot of alls and everys. Like we teach our kids, never say all, never say every, never say never. Except for when you're saying never say all and never say every. Because it's too concrete. Like, you don't always do anything. You don't never do anything. Paul says, oh yeah, but God always will provide. Do you really mean always, Paul? Yeah, I do. Well, how can you know that? Because I trust him and he said he will. On every occasion, every occasion. In every way, in every way. Through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So when we give generously, what happens is God takes that and he uses it to create celebration in the heart's of others. And to that end, here's where I want to close today. If you came in here today and you feel guilty, 
Just stop for a minute and give it to God. Let it go. There's no guilt. God loves a cheerful giver, not a grinchy giver. So don't be grinchy. Let it go. Let the fear go. Let the anxiety go. But then celebrate. Through the weirdest year in the history that you have ever lived and probably will ever take part in, God has been on the move.